Well, good morning. It's great to see everybody here today. If you have your Bibles, I ask you to turn over to John chapter 13. We're going to be looking at the first 30 verses, actually, from John chapter 13. I, uh, I love mealtime for a whole host of reasons, food being very high on the list. But, but even growing up and, and now in my own home, I love mealtime also because of the fellowship time with the kids. You know, or when I was a child, it was, it was kind of a time when you would gather together and you can say, how was your day? This happened. This person said this to me. You're kidding. You know, the whole thing. And it's just it's kind of a rallying point, these meals. So I, I love mealtimes for a whole host of reasons. And they're normally fun, pleasant, light experiences. But not always. There's times when I was growing up, we'd pull together and my dad, at one point in our life, we were, we were actually going to move to Brazil for two years and he had to drop the bomb on us, you know, and he said, kids, I got to tell you something. And we're a little unsettled because when he says that, it's probably not real positive. We're moving to Brazil for two years. What? What? What about my friends? And you know, all this stuff that happens. And there's other times we'd pull together and my dad would say, I got to talk to you kids about something. That normally meant we had done something wrong and we need to work on it, you know. So, so meal times normally were pleasant, but sometimes my dad used those times to teach us some very important things. And I, I've done the same with my family. They're normally pretty light, but once in a while I say, kids, we've got to talk to you. And they kind of roll their eyes and say, oh, boy, what's coming up now? You know, something's happening. You, you've done the same thing. When we come to John chapter 13, we have words from a loving Lord. That's absolutely true. But you're going to notice as we work through this text, it's a very unsettling experience for all the participants. And it's not bad, but it is that. And in the process, the Lord is going to teach some very important lessons to us about himself. So let's, let's uh, work through the text. Notice, first of all, how they're going to be unsettled as Jesus washes their feet in the first 17 verses. All right, so let's, let's kind of read it and, and kind of work through it together. I, I want you to notice something in the washing of the, uh, of the disciples' feet. Two, two things. Um, I mean, we all kind of know where it's going. In verses 12 to 17, he's going to say, you know, you do what I did. And you, you, you know the story. So I, I understand that. So it, it's clear that what Jesus does with them becomes a pattern for them, doesn't it? Okay, we're going to find that. But I want you to notice something else. As we work through this text, it is not merely a pattern for us. It's also a picture of what he's already done for us, or in their case, what he will be doing for them. So, so watch, and this is what happens. In like verses 6 to, I don't know, maybe 9 or 11, we're going to hear about the picture. And then verses 12 to 17, we're going to hear about the pattern. But let's work through the story, and I'll kind of rehearse this stuff as we go. First of all, with any good story, there's got to be a setting. And we read about it here in verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. See, John wants you to know something before you get into the story. Is he going to rattle his disciples a little bit here? Yeah. Is he going to make them feel a little bit uncomfortable? Mm-hmm. Is it because he doesn't like them? Uh-uh. 
No, 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 no. This text says Jesus is leaving these guys. He knows he's going to have to talk to them because everything's going to change. The Spirit's going to come, but he's not going to be there physically. All that stuff he's got to explain to them. And he says, look, I'm going to accomplish my mission, and I want these guys to know how deeply I love them. So it's really important as you enter into this thing. I mean, when my dad had those conversations with us at the table, it wasn't because he was saying, I really want to kind of like stick it to my son, Doug. You know, really get at him. You know? No, no. He, he was saying it because he loved me. He but look, this is life. You've got, you got, got to get used to it, man. And he starts right out front saying, Jesus has loved us to the uttermost. And we're going to know that because shortly he's going to die on the cross for our sins. So there's the setting. <laughs> look at the inciting incident. It happens in verses 2 to 5. And just think about what this would be like. Now, 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 now once again, as, as I read through this, this text, I want you to think about this. We, we don't wash feet today. I mean, I mean, if you were to come in today and Tim would say, okay, everybody take your shoes off. You know, we, I mean, we, 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 don't, we don't do that. But in antiquity, we would all be wearing sandals. And, and, and I don't want to make this glamorous because it wasn't. In antiquity, you, know, you, you just think about things like... Um, what do they do with um, garbage and sanitary issues? A lot of that stuff in antiquity ended up in the street. It just did, you know. You would dodge around all of it. It's just kind of the way it worked. So when, when somebody comes in for a meal, feet are dirty and smelly. Perhaps a whole host of other things. And um, if I'm having you in and we're considered kind of Peers, I'm not touching your feet, and you're not touching mine. I need to find some servant around, somebody of a lesser quality, and have them come, and they'll wash their feet. Somebody's got to wash their feet because, you know, this is not good. But, but, but I'm not going to do it. And that's just typical protocol in, in culture. Somebody better wash the feet, not me, somebody lesser than us. That's kind of how it works. So here they are in the upper room, and it's just them <laughs> and Jesus. And notice what the text says. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come from the Father and was going back to the Father. So, so, so even as he's going to stand up and do what he's going to do here in just a moment, John just says, look, I mean, if you're talking about the divine and the diabolical at work in one moment, it's right now in this meal. Satan is saying to, to Judas, this is the time to betray him. And at the same time, you've got the confidence of our Lord and our Lord of Lords and King of Kings as he knows exactly what he's going to be doing and he's going to be using all of that stuff ultimately to accomplish what God has for him. So all that stuff, stuff's happening, none of which the disciples have a clue about. You know, they're just saying, hey, matzo looks pretty good. You know, who made the herbs? You know, whatever. I mean, you know, just, you know, they're just, you know, hey, they, you know, that's where they're at. But, but there's this whole cosmic thing going on behind the scenes. They don't know it. You know, for them, it's mealtime. Jesus, knowing all these things, 
verse 4, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. How are you feeling about now as one of the disciples? I mean, this isn't your peer. This is your master. And in antiquity, it was important for masters to look humble, but not to be humiliated. And this is moved from one to the other. Do you see? Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. <laughs> That's the incident. That's where all the tension comes out of. So he's kind of going from one guy to another to another. And if you want anybody to speak up and tell, tell us how everybody else is feeling, who would you pick? It's going to be Peter. No. And so Peter's our guy. He's going to come on the scene here and he's going to tell you. He's going to tell you what everybody else is thinking. <laughs> and what I want you to notice is this. Jesus has this conversation. Peter speaks, Jesus speaks, Peter speaks, Jesus speaks, Peter speaks, Jesus speaks. Every time Peter speaks, he's wrong. He doesn't get it right one time in this conversation. Blows it every single time. And Jesus has to keep qualifying him. And so he tries to react to that and blows it. His next statement's a mess too. So I mean, that's what happens all the way through here. But in doing all that, Jesus teaches us some wonderful truths. So we love dear Peter because he helps to move the story along. So he came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, and if I could emphasize it like this, do you wash my feet? I mean, look, that's what everybody's been thinking. And he's just saying, what are you doing? I mean, like, you've just broken social protocol. We don't do this. Like, Lord. Jesus answered him, what, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. And I don't think he's just talking about his explanation he's going to give in verse 12. Clearly, that's where it starts. But what Jesus is doing now is deeper than merely washing their feet. Notice what happens then. So Peter's trying to react, right? Look at what Peter says. Peter said to him, because Peter thinks, you know what? I'm going to be the right guy here. This is not the way it's supposed to be. So Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And he was probably thinking Jesus was going to say, man, Peter, oh, Peter, thank you so much for standing up for me. Right? Not exactly. Jesus answered him and said, if, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. So Peter's looking at all this whole thing and saying, oh, well, because at the core of Peter's heart, he loves Jesus, doesn't he? So he's thinking like, no part of Jesus. Like that, well, I, I, okay, I'll, I'll, here's a good one. So he comes back with another one. Simon Peter said, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. So just like do it all. And Jesus said to him, look, uh, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For Jesus knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. 
Do you see what Jesus is doing here? This is really, really important. Was Jesus washing their feet and was that violating social protocol to teach us a very important lesson? Absolutely, yes. Absolutely, yes. But do you realize that in washing their feet, he was teaching them a deeper lesson and giving them a picture of a deeper reality? He was telling Peter and the guys, you know what? The only one that can ultimately cleanse you is me. It is the act that I have already done with you. You are all clean, except for one, Judas Iscariot. Because he is not a true believer in Jesus Christ. And what you need, Peter, what all my people need to come into a relationship with me, is this total cleaning. And then what I'm doing now is merely reflective of the ongoing cleansing I do in your life as a believer in my intercessory work. So in, in doing what Jesus was doing, he was setting a pattern for them. But he was also saying, look, this doesn't compare to the ultimate reality, to the ultimate sacrifice, because Jesus said this, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to what? But to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And in this one act, when you plumb to its depth, what you find is, it is a picture of the incredible divine protocol that we might say he violates. That God would become a man and live with sinners and pay their penalty so they can be set free. That's much, much more of a violation of any kind of protocol than washing feet, isn't it? And so in that moment, he tells his disciples, what I am doing to you, you don't fully understand now. You're going to get the idea of the pattern here in a couple verses. After my crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection, you will be blown away when you realize, whoa, what he has done for us. So Peter, in kind of blowing it, really helps us to understand what Jesus was doing. And then Jesus then not only talks about the picture, but he's going to talk about the pattern here in verses 12 and following. Notice what he says. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? <laughs> and my guess is they would be sitting there saying, not exactly, <laughs> right? He says this. You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. You know what I love? When it comes to ministry, I will never sacrifice near as much as my Lord. Isn't that true? I mean, number one, he as a master was washing the feet of his disciples. That, that is like so far out of protocol. It's crazy. Peer doing it to peer, you don't see that very often either. There's a couple examples of it, not much. And so Jesus is saying, I want you to do this, even though I know your culture doesn't do it. I want you to do this, 
Because I have done this. And by the way, this is a picture of something I have done over here called redeeming you. So therefore, I want you to move into your relationship with one another and love one another in such a way that there is nothing you would not be willing to do for one of your brothers or sisters in Jesus Christ. Is there anything on that list for you? There's a couple things that I just hate to do. I mean, I, I, I seem to get nothing out of it. And, and I'm reminded, I, I forgot to bring this speech with me. Uh, it's a little statement. Uh, Ruth Kalkin, years ago, was speaking. And so I'm just going to, I'll probably butcher it, but I'm just going to give you an overview of what she had said. She basically said, she said, um, Lord, you know how much when I'm running a women's group, how I just enjoy doing that. And you know how much when I have an opportunity to speak to women and there's all kinds of responses, I just love that. I love, Lord, to be in the limelight. But I wonder, Lord, how would I respond if you asked me to minister to an older woman in the silence of her home where no one else would see or no no one else would know? Lord, would I be willing to do that for you too? You see, that's what Jesus is doing in this text, isn't he? He's pushing you and I to say, look, look, there should be no limits to our love. There should be nothing so menial that I can't do that because of who I am. No, there's no place for that in Christianity. Because of what Jesus has done. Not only in this act to his disciples, but in his great act for us in redemption. So that was really pretty unsettling for these guys, wasn't it? I mean, they're... I mean, they're just thinking like, good meal. And all of a sudden, before they know it, Jesus is doing this and he's saying that. Like, what in the world happened? A loving Lord is teaching his own what's most important. That's what has happened. So it's unsettling as he washes their feet. I find out also it becomes really unsettling when he exposes Judas as the betrayer. Look what happens here in verse 18 and following. Um, I'm going to work through it and then make just a couple of comments at the end and then, then we'll be done. But we're not there yet. So, Notice what he goes on to say. I, I do not speak of all of you. Verse 18. Um, I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who has sent me. So he starts out by saying this. Okay, guys, I taught you the lesson about loving one another. But I want you to know something. All because you come and you sit at this meal with me doesn't mean you're one of mine. Because one of you is going to betray me. And the reason I'm telling you this is that when it happens, you don't become discouraged. Look, um, if a coach is running a basketball team or a baseball team or whatever, football team, whatever the case may be, and players start quitting from the team, 
doesn't that normally reflect upon the coach? I mean, at least don't you start wondering, what's up with the coach? Like, does he have problems? And the last thing Jesus wanted to happen as he's going to expose the betrayer is for his disciples to think when Judas left and betrayed them, like, how did this happen? Was there something wrong with Jesus? Did this catch him off guard? And Jesus wants these guys to know right up front, look, as I'm going to talk to you about this stuff, none of this catches me off guard. Just like David had advisors back there when he speaks in the book of Psalms, men that he trusted, men that were close to him, right there with him, they just kind of, they, they did. They literally went after him and betrayed him. So it's going to happen to the ultimate son of David. So don't be surprised by any of that. And something else, guys, as he speaks to his own about the betrayer. It hurts to be betrayed. But recognize something that they'll do the same thing to you. Some will receive, some won't. When they receive you, whatever they do to you, they're ultimately doing to me and they're doing to the Father. So don't be taken back by these things. I am for you. I will use you regardless of what people say. But here's what's interesting to me as I read this text. Does that mean that as Jesus is working through there, when he thinks of Judas, he thinks to himself, you know, who really gives a rip about this guy? I needed somebody to betray me so I could ultimately die. And um, he's as good as anybody. So let's just, yeah, he'll be damned in the process. So let's just kind of get at it. Like, who cares? Is that how he feels about Judas? Don't get him and say, like, you know, he's a loser anyway. Who Not at all. Notice what he says here. This is very interesting. Look what he says here in verse um, 21. After saying these things, does, does anybody's text say Jesus didn't really give a rip? What does it say? Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Three times in John's gospel, Jesus is troubled. When he talks about us, it's interesting, in chapter 14, he tells us not to be troubled. And I would argue the reason we don't have to be troubled is the things that really need to trouble anybody should only trouble him, not us. Isn't that true? So Jesus is troubled three times. We're not supposed to be troubled at all. He's troubled in John chapter 11 when he comes upon the grave of his friend Lazarus, and he weeps. There is something about death and all that is involved in that whole experience when our Lord, and, and the Lord knew he was going to raise the guy. And yet, seeing people weep and understanding death and what it does, Jesus is troubled in the depths of his soul because he cares, and he is the one who will have victory over that. That troubles him. Later, in chapter 12, we find again Jesus is troubled. And this time he's troubled with his own death. Because he realizes the great pain and the great sacrifice that he will make for you and I on the cross. And it troubles him at the very core of his soul. And this is the third time. That one of his own that had walked with him for three years would betray him. You know, when you go back and you track through John's gospel, what Jesus does, does with, with um, Judas, 
The Lord gives all kinds of opportunities to Judas. Back in chapter 6, when, when Peter says, Lord, and Jesus says, well, are you guys going to wander away like some of these other people? Peter says, no, 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 Lord. You have the words of eternal life. Where else will we go? Jesus says, that's great, Peter. But you know, one of you is a devil. That was a wake-up call for Judas. But he never heard it. And he would stand there. He was there at La when Lazarus was brought out of the grave. He was there when Jesus did all kinds of miracles and taught all kinds of people. Man, he heard the whole thing. And he had opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. And he just rejected. And Jesus, at this moment, because this is the final moment for Judas. When he takes the bread, his destiny is sealed. And Jesus, before doing that, and the very core of his soul is troubled. He's not just troubled. The disciples are thinking too, because now Jesus says explicitly, one of, one of you will betray me. Notice what happens. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. Isn't that fascinating? In other words, if you would have tapped, your, tapped one of the disciples at that point, even Peter, hey, Peter, you have to play, place bets on somebody. Like, who would you think it is? Nobody would have guessed Judas. Jesus knew it, but nobody else guessed it. One of his disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at table close to Jesus. Now, let me just explain this for the meal. I mean, don't think of Da Vinci's, uh, you ever see the Last Supper Da Vinci shot? You know, where you got all these guys, it's like a mug shop be, behind this big table and they're all kind of there. I mean, that's not at all what this would have looked like. If you think about it, it would, been, it would have been very typical to have it. In, it would be like a U-shape. And Jesus would have been here at the, at the center. And because it talks about the, the, the disciple whom Jesus loved leaning back, normally what you would do, these tables were not high. They were probably about this high. And what you would often do is you would lean on your left hand and you would eat the food with your right hand. And your feet would kind of be fanned out from there. Which means... John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, which is an interesting way to describe yourself, isn't it? At the end of the day, I guess John's favorite song was, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Right? Because he says, look, if you're going to just describe, let me, let, let, me, let me just tell you what absolutely overwhelms me. Jesus loves me. Okay, so he's at Jesus' is right. Guess who's at Jesus' is left? Judas. Remember, remember earlier in the Gospels when John and James wanted to be, have clout before Jesus? And they say, Lord, in your kingdom, let one of us sit on your right and the other one on your left. Because they were the honored spots. And so here's Jesus in the middle. Here's Judas on his left. Here's John on his right. And you've got this U-shape and you've got different... My guess is Peter's down there or there because he's going to kind of like to kind of talk across the table. Actually, John's here. Talk across the table. So notice what Peter... You've got to love Peter. Peter's just... So Simon Peter motioned to him, to John. Shh, John. What's he saying? So he motions to him. To him... To ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So... That disciple leaned back against Jesus and said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, 
It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. You know, when a host hands somebody some food, it's a statement of honor. So here Judas is placed at his left. <laughs> Peter's trying to figure this whole thing out. John leans back and says, hey, hey Jesus, like, who is it? It's going to be the person I hand this morsel to. Well, who's hearing that? But Judas. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him, at least outside of John. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. It's tragic, isn't it? Judas has heard what Jesus has said in John chapter 6. In John chapter 12, when Mary washed Jesus' feet, Judas was right there. And because in the very core of his heart, he didn't really love Jesus. He just saw wasted money that if it was in, if it was in their treasury, he could pilfer more of it. And that's one of these times in John 12 where Jesus will look at Peter, I mean Peter, Judas, and he'll rebuke him in front of everybody. And once again, that was an opportunity for Judas to wake up. And he never did. And all the way through this story, at the very beginning, Satan is tempting Judas. Betray him. Betray him. And Jesus is warning, one of you is unclean. One of you will betray me. The person I give this bread to. He is the one. And what Judas's last hope, folks, is when Jesus picked up that morsel and looked to the guy at his left and said, here, this is for you. That was his last hope to think to himself, what in the world am I doing? Everything he's done, the way he's honoring me, the warnings he's given me, but he doesn't do that, does he? Takes that bread, lives as the hypocrite, bites into it. Satan comes into him. And at that point, it's all over. So Jesus leans over and says, you better do what you're going to do. And he goes out because it's night. Well, it was literally night. But it was also the darkest moment of his life. And his fate is sealed. Now, if that's not one of the most unsettling meals that you've ever listened to, I don't know what else is. I think we learned two lessons. Let me share them with you, and then we'll be done. Here's the first one. And, 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 and here's what I want you to realize. Everything Jesus does at this meal is an act of love. It's, it's all love on his part. First point is this. Jesus identifies the depth of his love so as to deepen our love for one another. And um, 
don't just think of Jesus doing a menial task of washing one another's feet. It was a graphic, wonderful example and pattern. I'm not questioning any of that. That is just a a tiny picture of what he's done for us spiritually, isn't it? I mean, I, I, I don't, I just, I have to tell you folks, um, I teach this stuff, teach it in seminary, but I can't ever quite fully understand it. When I read Philippians 2, and I realize that he just descends, and he who is God of very God is willing to become a man, and he's willing, as he becomes a man, to lay aside some of, I mean, look, he's always love, he's always holy, he's always all those things. But he's willing when he becomes a man to submit himself to the Father so he doesn't act apart from the Spirit. He even chooses not to understand and know things, some things, in submission to the Father. And he's willing to do that. So he becomes a man, and and not just any man, he's willing to come and become a man who dies. And, And that's not good. But just not to die anyway, but to die on a cross. And what you find as you read Philippians chapter 2, it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. And what we see is the ultimate example of sacrificial love, of humiliation, of, of, a, of a demeaning act on the surface. Nobody walked by Calvary the day Christ was crucified and said, Hey, this is so wonderful. The sins of the world are being forgiven. What did they do? They walked by and they said, three criminals who probably deserve what they're getting. And they kept right on going. And our redemption was being bought in that moment. And so Jesus shows us the depth. It just gives us a little picture in the foot washing of the depth of his own sacrificial love for us. Willing to serve us. God Serving us. Like, what is that? Every other king in history, his subjects serve him. But this king chooses to serve his subjects. I mean, I, go figure it out. I, I, I mean, does it make any sense? No, but we bask in it, don't we? And this text says, look, the more you enter into Jesus and his incredible love for you, it should overflow so that you move into people's lives and you say, there's nothing demeaning. There's nothing so menial that I won't be willing to do it for you because of what he's done for me. That, that's the way it's supposed to work, isn't it? Where we get lost in the cross and we live as our Savior. So that's what I learned when I read this text. Jesus identifies the depth of his love so as to deepen our love. The other thing I learned is this. Jesus grieves over the rejection of his great love so as to expose the hypocrisy of others. Is it possible that you've been hanging around the chapel for years without a relationship with Jesus Christ? I mean, like, can that happen? Like, could you be here... And, and, and we're so happy you're here. Please keep coming. That's, that's just, I mean, please keep coming. And I'm not saying I'm offering you the final bread. And if you don't accept it, you're damned. I'm not saying any of that. Don't hear that. Okay. But what I am saying is this. Hanging out with Christians, 
never makes you a Christian. The only thing that makes you a Christian is being forgiven by the Lord Jesus Christ and coming into a vital love relationship with him. That's it. None of these other guys knew what Judas was even doing. It just all went over their heads. And Jesus was exposing so they would learn and so that he would be challenged. But again, he doesn't hear. And all I can tell you, it's the only thing that matters at the end of the day is your relationship to Christ. That it is real. That it is vital. That it is vibrant. And that it moves you into your world, into the lives of others in such a way that it impacts them. Let me uh, end by violating the words of a very familiar song. I mentioned it to you earlier. Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible tells me so. Can I, can I give it to you again? But say it a little bit differently. So read this text. Maybe this is what we could say. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the incarnation tells me so. Father, we thank you for this incredible story. It is both exhilarating, encouraging, and challenging all at the same time. 